Please open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, the book of Daniel. When last we left our story, Judah had been carried off to exile by the Babylonians. We preached a couple sermons about living in Babylon, living in exile, and and in many ways we're living in exile, both because our nation is becoming less and less Christian. But more importantly, because as Christians, our true home is in heaven. And while we're living here on earth, we are in exile. And Paul even says that while we're in our fallen bodies, we're in exile until we get our resurrection body. And so we're in this period of time where we're all learning together as the church to, learn, uh, to live to the glory of God in exile, as it were. We love the book of Daniel because there's all the great stories of Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in the fiery furnace. Um, Great stories we love to teach in Sunday school because they're so visual and so amazing. And we focus on these heroes of the faith and how they remain steadfast while in exile. And yet, really, Daniel intended the book to exalt God as the hero. So let's not forget that. God is the hero of the Bible, not man. And to the extent that man bows the knee to God and repents of his fallenness and seeks God for mercy and forgiveness, trusts in God and obeys his word, we can imitate, we can imitate those examples in scripture, but the hero is God, the hero is Jesus. So let's keep that in mind, even as we look at Daniel, we'll look at two stories today from chapter one and chapter two, which represents two trials. And we're going to run into various trials as we attempt to live in exile all week long trials and choices we are faced with. First, though, let's find out who Daniel is so we get a picture in our mind. Starting with verse 3, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, in some translations it may say a eunuch, probably a eunuch, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, Youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Since Paul left, I was reading this and it said, of the nobles. Youths in whom was no defect who were good-looking, showing, you know. I'm like, well, there we have Paul Nobles. So, uh, Paul's older than Daniel was. Daniel, probably around 14. And the idea being when when an empire would conquer another nation to mine out their best and brightest, the young people from noble families, these intelligent young people who had already been trained by their families, and to 
indoctrinate them into Babylonian culture, to use their giftedness and their talents, but to Babylonianize, which isn't a word, but you get the picture, to get them so comfortable with Babylonian culture that they become Babylonians. So you, you have two, two options as an empire. You can totally just destroy another culture and wipe it off the map, or you can assimilate it into your culture and force them to take on Babylonian thought, Babylonian beliefs, Babylonian worship. And since these are the best and the brightest of their culture, they're going to take this back to their own people and in turn indoctrinate the rest of their culture. And so this was the strategy the Babylonian Empire was employing. Daniel was part of this group, probably of uh, royalty, um, obviously intelligent, good-looking young man. He was given a full-ride scholarship, as it were, in the best academy Babylon had to offer. And we hear of three of his friends as well. Three of his friends get highlighted in these stories. And so here's the first trial. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. In fact, we read later that at the end of three years, they would stand before the king for an interview. Uh, this is often done at the end of like uh, a PhD dissertation. You have to go before a panel and, and defend your thesis. Um, ordination for a pastor, they go before a panel of elders and get grilled for a few hours to make sure their doctrine is sound. And Nebuchadnezzar would be the king who they would stand before and he would ask them all sorts of questions pertaining to all disciplines of knowledge. And then the king would choose the best of the best of the best to be his personal advisors and then distribute the others to various posts around the kingdom. Now think about this. A, a young man being brought from his, his home culture to another culture, so there's that going on, but to be singled out for such um, a task. For many young people, this would go right to your head. Right to your head. I got the full-ride scholarship to Harvard. And I'm going, and I'm not going to be discerning at all that possibly what's going to go on while I'm at Harvard is that I'm going to be indoctrinated into the ways of the world. And I think many of our young people fall into this trap. They excel at what they do here, maybe it's sports, maybe it's academics, and they, they get noticed by the world, and the world dangles a carrot in front of them. And we've got to help our children to be discerning adults. Not all that glitters is gold. But if you think you're getting a sermon this morning on school choice, you're disappointed. You're going to be disappointed. 
And I've seen this passage in Daniel used as a defense of placing your children into a secular school because look at the great impact Daniel and his friends have on the Babylonian culture. Folks, they didn't have a choice. Trust me, their parents don't want them in this context. So we're not using this text this morning to tell us whether or not we should have our children trained by the Babylonians. Well, now that I got your attention on that topic, what do we teach? We teach you to be very discerning about how you educate your youth. We teach you that each one of your children is different and will respond differently to different educational environments. We teach you, as we did last week during the baby dedication, that based on Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6.4, it is your responsibility as parents to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and to teach them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and tell them about God's word as you rise up and lay down and you go out and you come in. And as they get older, as they get older, perhaps some children will be ready to stand against the culture. Others, not so much. And you have to know each one of your children. Well, other people here this morning think, okay, well, this is going to be a sermon on abstaining from alcohol. And certainly we can talk about that biblically, but it's not from this passage. It's not from this passage. And maybe there's some vegetarians or vegans out there that think this is, this is my passage on justifying biblically the Daniel diet. Right? That's really popular right now. All three of those topics, you could go online and get part of a pretty heated discussion within evangelicalism. And they're all discernment, wisdom issues. And this passage is not teaching on any of those. Please don't do that to the Bible. We have stressed from the pulpit that the problem with man is that he speaks for God and then says, that's my God. And we say, oh, I'll never fall into this kind of idolatry. I won't carve an idol, put it on my mantle, and then worship it. Folks, the idol's not real. There's no God behind the idol. People put words into the idol's mouth and then obey their own words. That's the problem. And it's almost worse to me when I hear Christians take God's word, misinterpret it, and then say, that's my God speaking to me. Surely when you read the Bible, that is God speaking to you. But if you don't have the interpretation correct, it is not your God speaking to you. It is you speaking to you. So you have a hobby horse about school choice or alcohol or vegetables. And this is your passage and my God is speaking to me. And you'll miss the whole point of the passage. The point here is that Daniel, first of all, has been trained by his family to be obedient to the word of God. 
there's a good side note for you. If you're, if you're thinking about where do I put my kid into high school, because, you know, Daniel's high school age, and you're just now thinking about arming and equipping your kids to stand firm in the faith, you've, you're behind the curve. Daniel and his friends were able to stand firm because of their upbringing. This was already in their hearts. This was already in their hearts. And they, against their will, were brought into this situation. Here was their concern. The king's food had been offered to idols. And I tell you, I did not talk to Matt Sheridan this week about what he was going to teach. Is our God not amazing and sovereign and providential? There's really no reason for both of us to be talking about meat offered to idols today. How random a topic is that? When I heard him speak this morning after singing that glorious song, Holy, 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 I got weak in the knees. I, I just wanted to fall on my face and worship right there. I told Matt, I wasn't weak in the knees because you were speaking. I love you, brother, but... I was, you know, I was like, are you kidding me now? He's, he's going to do 1 Corinthians 8. And uh, this happens all the time here. And we teach our God is real. He is active. He's the God of the church. The Holy Spirit is active. And maybe a little piece of us kind of doubts. And God gives us these moments to remind us He is who he says he is, he is real, he is speaking, his spirit is in all true true believers, and he has something to tell us this morning from his word. The problem here was that they did not want to dishonor their God by eating food that was used in pagan worship. They didn't want to defile themselves in that way. You read the Levitical law and you can eat meat. Amen. Certain kinds of meat handled in certain kinds of ways. And then we get to the New Testament and Peter is shown in a vision from God that now all food is blessed by God. Amen. Amen. Including vegetables. Amen. Amen. (laughs) <laughs> the Levitical law does not does not command us that you cannot drink wine. You should not get drunk, which the New Testament reaffirms. But Jesus changed water into wine. Why would he cause those to stumble? Oh, it was non-alcoholic. Come on. Come on. Let's not go there. You're you're putting words in God's mouth that aren't in there. The new heavens and new earth will have new wine. It'll be non-alcoholic wine. People will not get drunk. Drunkenness is the sin. The teaching is much harder than that because it goes to your heart. Why do you want to drink? Why do you want to eat vegetables and not meat? Why do you want to put your kid in this school and not this school? That's the harder question. 
It was believed that the meat offered to idols, that the God of those idols would infuse into the meat and the wine. And by taking in the meat and the wine, that somehow you would have the power of that deity. So not only were you honoring the deity, but you were somehow taking on their power. And Daniel and his friends did not want to defile themselves in that way. Now, why would the king give his best food to these young people? Because he wants them to be empowered, to be great advisors. And so the belief was that if they ate these foods offered to idols, it would empower these young people to be great at what they're doing. See, we read this passage and we think it has something to do with, oh, Daniel was afraid that if he ate rich food, he would become overweight and sluggish. Or if he drank too much wine, he would become drunk. Now, I'm sure he was concerned about that, and you should be concerned about that. But the primary concern was that, A, they didn't break any Levitical laws, and they had no idea how this food was handled. You know, is it kosher or not? And there were going to be some things on the king's table that were not allowed by Levitical law, but they could have just abstained from those items. The problem was that these foods were offered to idols, and they wanted nothing to do with it. That's the problem. In Paul's day, that was still a problem. We don't have meat offered to idols today, as far as we know. Who knows what the butcher's doing back there? And if you go over to the house of somebody who practices another religion, you may be unwittingly partaking of food that that was offered to idols. It does still go on today in many cultures. We've become a multicultural society. But, But Paul teaches that those gods aren't real gods. There's nothing inside the meat. It's not tainted. But somebody coming out of paganism where they worshiped that way and they truly believed in these false gods and that those false gods were in the meat and the wine, they didn't want anything to do with that. That's when he refers to the weaker brother. His conscience is misinformed. But Paul tells us, do not violate your conscience. It's a sin and a very bad idea because you start violating your conscience in one area, you will sear your conscience and start violating your conscience in other areas. What you need to do is re-inform your conscience biblically. In the meantime, don't cause your weaker brother to stumble. Often we use alcohol as a modern day example, although it's a, it's a poor example. I'll tell you why it's a poor example. Because if you eat the meat offered to idols, the, the worst that's going to happen is you get indigestion. And certainly gluttony is a sin. Don't forget that. Gluttony is a sin. Overindulging in any food or drink is forbidden. Don't let food master you. Our big one in our culture is caffeine and sugar. We gave you donuts and coffee this morning. We had hidden cameras too. So we know who you are. No. 
It was a test. I don't want to embarrass the moms. I won't name names, but I had to stop one little girl. She had her dress up like a bull. It was really kind of cute. She's no dummy. She's like, hey, these things are free. (laughs) I mean, for a second, I was like, that's brilliant. (laughs) Cute when a kid does it, probably... Not so cute when an adult is doing it. We have to be careful here of of two two problems, legalism and licentiousness, or legalism and antinomianism. The legalist says, I'm not going to touch wine, and that makes me a better person. And the antinomian or the, the licentious behavior is, hey, I'm free in Christ. Pour me another, and another, and another. And neither's right, and neither's honoring God. You search your heart. Why? Why am I? Why am I partaking? And do I need to fast from this item to prove to myself that I am not controlled by it? And that the the problem with the parallelism between alcohol and meat is you, too much alcohol, and you can hurt people. Too much meat, you know. The, the consequences are more immediate with the alcohol long-term with the meat. Oh, you can bankrupt your family by causing them t- to have to pay your medical bills when you're on your third, bu- your third triple bypass. And so these, these are hard decisions because they go to the heart. And that's what God wants is for us to go to Him and have Him expose our heart and show us where our idolatry is hidden down deep. So, Daniel decides to abstain, but I love that he still respects authority. He doesn't get in their face, and we shouldn't get in the culture's faces as Christians. He realizes that this this eunuch is putting himself at risk if he allows them to eat vegetables. Sorry, before we get there, I just wanted to point out in Daniel 1, 6 and 7 that they changed their names from God-honoring names to idol-honoring names. This is part of the indoctrination process. So Daniel's name means God is my judge. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. Mishael means who is like the Lord. And Azariah means the Lord is my helper. And then it says the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, which means Bel, protect the king. Bel is a pagan god. Hananiah's name was changed to Shadrach, which means command of Aku another pagan god. Mishael's name to Meshach. Um, That is supposed to say who is... Oh, no. Who is what Aku is. Who is what Aku is. Aku is another pagan god. It's kind of like when we say who is like our god. And to Azariah, uh, the name Abednego, Ebed, servant, Nego, another pagan god, also called Nebo. And so they were 
given these pagan names to help them to start turning from their true God and being devoted to the false gods of Babylon. So they don't want to eat this food because it's been offered to idols and they don't want to dishonor their God nor run the risk that um, in any kind of demonic activity, any kind of false religion would enter them. We don't have enough from the text here to know exactly what these youths thought about whether or not anything was inside the food they were eating. All they knew is they wanted to stay far away from it. That's, that's good counsel. When in doubt, err on the side of caution when you have choices to make. When in doubt, err on the side of caution. As a side note, you understand that this teaching was common in the New Testament as well from the pagan culture. And in John chapter 6, when Jesus said, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, there's been some confusion historically in the church whether he meant that literally or figuratively. We know from other teaching in the Bible that he meant it figuratively. He offered up the elements of bread and wine the Last Supper, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. The Roman Catholic Church does teach that the elements turn into the actual body and blood of Jesus and that by eating the bread and the wine, you are taking the deity into yourself in the same way that the pagans taught eating meat and drinking wine offered to the gods would bring that deity into yourself. And yet that misses the whole context of John chapter 6. It's after he fed the 5,000 and then he begins prophesying to them. And they said, well, Moses was the great prophet who fed us for 40 years in the desert. You fed us one day. And Jesus says, no, I'm the bread from heaven. If you don't eat from me, you don't get eternal life. It was a spiritual teaching. When Jennifer and I were to be married, uh, we, weren't, we weren't true believers. We weren't Christians. We wanted to get married in a church because we were raised in churches. She was raised Catholic. I was raised Lutheran. So we went to a Catholic church and sat down with the priest, and he asked us questions. And I'm not thinking anything spiritual. I'm just like, I want to get married. Let's go. What are the hoops? And this, this priest saw I was wearing a baseball hat, and he's... Um, I told him I was raised Lutheran, and he said, would you rather eat a baseball that would make you like Babe Ruth because it turned into Babe Ruth, or would you rather eat a baseball that just reminded you of Babe Ruth and inspired you to play like Babe Ruth? And I sat there thinking, why would I eat a baseball? What is this guy talking about? (laughs) I want to leave. (laughs) and now I can look back and see what he was talking about in Roman Catholic belief transubstantiation the bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus so you're actually eating Jesus and that's how he abides in you and if that were the case we should be taking 
the Mass every day, all day long. Can't overindulge in Jesus. The Lutheran teaching that Martin Luther taught, consubstantiation, that yes, it's still bread and blood, but in some way the real presence of Christ is in, with, and under those elements. And I was researching the Reformers and those who were martyred for their faith, especially under Bloody Mary's reign, because they would not agree to this teaching. First and foremost, it was Scripture alone. And the church would not let the common man read the Scriptures in their own language. And many lost their life so we could have an English Bible in our hands today. But secondly, it was this issue. Does Christ abide in me when I place my faith in Him and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in me? And as I keep His commands, as Jesus said in John 15, that's how I abide in Him and He abides in me? Or does Jesus abide in me when the bread and the wine turn into Jesus and I eat it? Which one causes you to think about His commands and obey them? Hey, if I just can eat Jesus' body and blood... I'm good. I'm good. I, I, don't need the, I don't need to read the Bible. I don't need to obey His commands. And so, this is what is at stake here. And people gave their lives, burned at the stake and would not recant. And they would put a Eucharist in front of them and say, you can save your life if you will recant and eat this now and say, this is actually Jesus' body. And one reformer said, I know nothing of your baked God. I know we have people in our church that that are dear fellow Christians. They still attend Catholic Church. I'm not here to offend you this morning. Not here to offend you. I'm, I'm, I'm here to lay out the truth for you. Eating the Eucharist does not actually put Jesus into you. Placing your faith in Christ, placing your faith in Christ and obeying His commands is what it means to abide in Him. Back to our story now. What happens? Daniel 1.8, but Daniel made up his mind... Think, people, always thinking Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought, he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. And as the rest of the story goes, after ten days, they look healthier than all the other youth. And it has nothing to do with the vegetables and the water. <laughs> It's because God supernaturally blessed their obedience. And God sovereignly wanted these young men to be in positions of influence and authority. And so he supernaturally not only gave them a healthier appearance, but we read that when they stand before Nebuchadnezzar and are quizzed, they are ten times smarter than their peers. And it has nothing to do with the vegetables. And my kids say, Amen. 
you should eat vegetables. Help the parents from the pulpit here. Kids, eat your vegetables. Now, choosing to honor God does not always work out this way, does it? Does it? You cannot choose to honor God and then demand from God how it will turn out. If it was more glorifying to God for Daniel and his friends to be punished, then that is something they must accept and trust God. You do the right thing biblically and you trust God for the results. You do the right thing biblically, you trust God for the results. The way we tend to live life is we say, this is what will work out best for me. And so we live life pragmatically and say, so I'll do this because I think that's how it will work out best for me. And then if we want to be Christian about it, we look and find a proof text to back up our decision. Rather, we need to train ourselves to think biblically and respond biblically and then trust God for the results. Again, in God's sovereign choice, it worked out well for Daniel and his friends. That was trial number one. Trial number two, we get to Daniel chapter two. It says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Now, as an aside, I was confused when I read this passage because the young men had been trained for three years and stood before Nebuchadnezzar. How could this be the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar? Do we have a a mistake? No, the Bible's without error. There's an explanation. As it turns out, Nebuchadnezzar started reigning with his father. And that's the way they would consider where your reign started, co-regents. So when Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Judah, he was rightly called King Nebuchadnezzar, even though his father was still alive. His father being too old to take on such tasks. When his father died and Nebuchadnezzar assumed full kingship, the Babylonians, we know historically, didn't officially count the first year of your reign until a certain month. That was the month that kings were inaugurated. So by the time we get to Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's been acting as king for five years But only the last two years was he the official king without his father being on the throne. So, problem solved. So, this is really the fifth year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign and the fourth year of Daniel's time in exile. So, by now, they've already done the three-year training. They've passed the test. They're in important positions around the kingdom. And they're well-known amongst Babylonian culture. And the king has these dreams. And he says, go to the Chaldeans. And Chaldean can both be a name for people from that region. But by this time, it had become a euphemism for all the wise men and diviners. He says, go to the Chaldeans and tell them 
you have to interpret my dream, but get this. You have to tell me the dream first and then interpret it. See, people can believe whatever they want to believe, but when push comes to shove, reality has a funny way of popping its head up, right? They could believe that these magicians had supernatural powers, but when push comes to shove, he was like, I want somebody who can tell me my dream first before I listen to your interpretation. And all the Chaldeans were saying, well, tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. He said, no, you tell me the dream and then I'll listen to your interpretation. Reminded me this week that a very high up in the ACLU, an African-American woman, and there's only three African-American women at this level of the ACLU. You'd think an organization all about equal rights would have more than three people of color in their leadership positions at that level. But, hey, we want to hang on to power, right? She took her two daughters into a restroom and three white men all over six feet tall came in self-identifying as women. And she said her daughters were traumatized. She went back to her friends at the ACLU and told them her concerns. And they said, we'll take your resignation. Now let's think about that for a second. An African-American woman, woman, African-American with daughter. That's the trifecta. That's, that's the triple threat. That's the power right there. But something trumped it. This transgenderism thing. Now let's put, let's put that aside for a second. And at face value, the ACLU just told this woman that three white men are more important to us than you as a woman, African-American, children. That happens in any other context. There's rioting. And for this this woman, reality hit her smack in the face because her children, her beloved, innocent daughter's innocence was on the line. And she came back to reality and the ACLU said, no, we're living in fantasy world here. They have more rights than your daughters have. And so she had to hand in her resignation. Now, she didn't come back to full reality because she was like, certainly we can find a compromise. Folks, there is no compromise. Reality says you use these bathrooms, you use these bathrooms. The system works just fine because it's aligned with reality. Constantly trying to make these connections for you between what's going on biblically and what's going on today. So here's the king. Reality slapped him in the face and he said, look, I can only listen to these dream interpreters if they can tell me my dream first. And he said, either tell me my dream or you get ripped from limb to limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Very interesting phrase here in the original. And historical sources tell us they had a practice of taking four palm trees growing close together and pulling them down to the ground and tying your limbs each to one of the four trees and then releasing the trees. And so this is what Daniel and his friends were facing. 
And the men came to the door. And they said, sorry, Daniel. These are probably people that Daniel knew. And by this time, these young men were enjoying their positions of prominence in the culture. And he had a good enough relationship with whoever was at the door to say, can you give me some time to pray? And then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven. Look, that's your only option, folks, is to fall on your knees and pray to God for mercy. And how sad that we wait until that's the last option when it should be the first option in all of our decision-making. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me the right thing to do for your glory and my good. I wanted to know the word for mercy here in the original because there's many words for mercy. And I was wondering if it was the word chesed, which we said is that covenant love, mercy kind of love. And I looked it up and um, I could not find the word for mercy in the original. And I started to panic. And then I realized I was trying to read Aramaic. Because Daniel 2, 4 to chapter 7 is all written in Aramaic. I had a a panic moment there. I lost all my Hebrew. There wasn't much there to begin with, and now it's completely... it's It's Aramaic. Parts of Daniel, Jonah, some phrases in the New Testament written in Aramaic. My wife was... Give me a hard time, she said. Well, Bible boy, didn't your seminary teach you Aramaic? And I'm like, no. I'm like, it's only Jonah, a little bit of Daniel, and some of the New Testament. She said, it's God's word. <laughs> Call up your seminary and demand to learn Aramaic. So I bet Austin knows Aramaic. I see him back there. A little Aramaic, Austin? A little. We could talk afterwards. You can tell me what what that word means. God gives Daniel the dream and the interpretation. And Daniel doesn't go running to exalt himself. He drops to his knees and praises the sovereign God for giving him the interpretation and the dream. He says, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with them. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. God is the hero of the story. Only the true God can reveal the mysteries of the universe because only the true God speaks and only the true God has wisdom and only the true God knows the future. This is our God. Jeremiah 33, 3, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. False gods cannot do that. John 15, 15, the true God says, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. 
For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Yes, we are slaves of Christ, but he calls us friends and tells us all of his plans. We have the mind of Christ. We have everything we need for life and godliness right here. We know how the story ends. God wins. And you could be on the winning team through faith in Jesus Christ. read another fascinating article this week in, in uh, Al Mohler's blog. It was from uh, the Atlantic Monthly, very prominent secular magazine. And the gentleman, from a secular point of view, was writing that if we're only material beings and have no soul, then really we have no choices. Oh, they appear like we have choices, but if we're only material beings, then all of our choices have been predetermined based on the chemistry going on in our brains. If we're all just a collection of neurons firing and we're products of our environment, our nature and our nurture, then no one really has choice. And he said, this is a problem because this is what keeps people from doing evil in society. I have a choice to make, and there's consequences to my choices. And our legal system doesn't work if you're not responsible for your choices. And so he said, I know the truth is that we are only material beings, and we don't have real choices, but society is better off if we all pretend that we have real choices. How do you think that's going to work? Yeah, you're not... You're not going to pretend. Either you think you have real choices and there's consequences either here on earth or when you stand before God. Pretending isn't going to change behavior. And so here's a secularist seeing, boy, this is a problem. Our nation's in for trouble, he was saying. But he wasn't ready to bow the knee to the true God. He was looking for another solution. Let's hang on to materialism, but let's all pretend there's a God. And we have to be careful as Christians that that's not how we live. Oh, I know we say there's a real God, but if you're not careful, you live like a materialist and say on Sunday morning, let's pretend there's a God. But when it comes right down to what I want, I'm going to go do what I want. This is not how to live as Christians. So I leave you with this question, then. Which of the two trials was the harder trial? Which of the two trials was the harder trial? And I ask you this question because you're going to walk out of this church this morning and you're going to get bombarded with choices. And I'm not just talking about the choices the world throws at you. Choices about how you're going to interact with your family and your friends and your your wife and your children and your neighbors and your co-workers and what you're going to do with the rest of your afternoon and what entertainment you're going and what you're going to eat. All kinds of choices. And at face value, it seems that trial number two was the harder trial, right? Getting ripped limb to limb. 
I think trial number one was harder. I'm scared, yes, of that day when the knife is held to my neck or the gun is held to my head and I have to confess Christ. But I'm not so scared. I believe the Holy Spirit will give me the courage just as he's given Christians all throughout the centuries the courage. I'm really more scared about the choices I have to make every day when death isn't on the line. Because I know that I am weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I'm afraid to be home alone. I love when my family's home. I've got an accountability group right there. Scares me when they take off and leave me home alone. I don't like working at the church alone. It's kind of creepy at night, actually. But I feel safe where people can see my computer and can see me working. It's hard to live as a Christian when death isn't on the line. And yet, we're deceiving ourselves into thinking that death isn't on the line when we make the small choices. It's death by a thousand cuts. I hear amens. The little choices lead to bigger choices. And every time we choose to obey Christ, we choose life. And when we choose to obey the flesh, we choose death. Option A in trial number one was we could eat yummy food and stay out of trouble. Nobody, nobody, nobody would have blamed them. Nobody would have blamed them. But they would have violated their conscience and dishonored their God. Option B, eat vegetables. <laughs> and drink water, but risk punishment. But you've protected your conscience and honored God. See, in trial number two, option A was um, not know the dream and die, or pray to God for mercy. Pretty simple choice, right? Oh, horrible consequences, but immediate consequences. I think trial number two was the easier trial. And part of Christian maturity and spiritual maturity is the ability to make the right decision when you don't have to. Not waiting for the circumstances in your life to become such where you're like, I guess we finally need to abstain from that. Making choices about how to spend your money and not waiting for, well, we're bankrupt, I guess, no more direct TV. And you see, the legalist says, well, I don't have direct TV. I'm holier than you. It's harder to say we could spend money on this, but should we spend money on this? I could eat this, but should I eat this? I could spend my time doing this, but should I spend my time doing The should questions are much harder than the can I or can't I. Before entering the land, Moses said these words 
to the children of Israel. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. That's choosing life. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him. I think the holding fast to him is what gets us through the gray issues in life. Hold fast to him. Cry out to him for mercy. Show me the right thing to do here, Lord. Don't let me fall into either legalism or licentiousness. That's too easy. Help me make good God-honoring decisions. And help me to know my heart and see where my flesh will tempt me to either say, yes, I can have this, or no, nobody can have this. Neither are correct. At the end of the day, your actions may be the correct thing to do, but God wants our heart to determine our actions. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he lays out for us these two choices. Have you seen this bumper sticker, No Jesus, No Life? No Jesus, No Life. You know, it's very clever, though we don't want to reduce our, our faith down to a license plate frame. In the Sermon on the Mount, after he's finished preaching, Jesus talks about two gates, a narrow gate and a broad gate. Narrow is the way to life, and broad is the gate that leads to destruction. There's two prophets, true prophets and false prophets. There's two trees, good trees and bad trees. The good tree produces good fruit, a bad tree, bad fruit. Two people building homes on two different foundations. And it all tells us that there's two paths in life, one that leads to life and one that leads to death. Let me end with this. In your justification, you're standing before God judicially. The only path that leads to life is placing your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and His sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sins. If you don't believe that and you're within hearing today, you have no assurance of life after death. You're a dead man walking. All of your good works do not count towards your judicial standing before God. And so, believe in Jesus. He said, for God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But if you, if you are in Christ, realize that every decision to disobey God throughout the day leads to a type of death. Leads to a type of death. Choose love over hate. Choose to forgive over getting even. Choose to seek forgiveness instead of justifying yourself. Choose generosity over stinginess. Choose to speak truth and love instead of lying and flattery. Choose to fear God, not man. When we place our faith in Christ, He not only gives us life, but He gives us the power to choose life in every choice we come into contact with. Let's lift up each other in prayer.
right now. Father God, thank you for eternal life through faith in Christ. Thank you for putting us on this earth and giving us these choices we have to make. I thank you first and foremost, Lord, that in our salvation, you chose us so that we could choose you. And so you get all the glory and all the credit. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit. Lord, I also thank you, though, for giving us the power in our sanctification to say yes to obedience and trust in life and to say no to those things that are not permissible, but also those things that would not be profitable. Help us to know the difference and give us the courage and the trust and the wisdom to know how to make the kinds of choices Daniel and his friends made. And at the end of the day, would you be glorified and exalted by our choices? Amen.